So you're listening to Shift Happens, the Empower Hour on Kootenai Co-op Radio, CJLY 93.5 FM in Nelson, 96.5 FM on the East Shore and North Kootenai Lake, 101.5 FM in the Lower Slocan Valley, and 107.5 FM in New Denver. My name is Jeff. And I'm Anna. And who are we interviewing today, we, Anna? Today we are talking to Maria Klievkoff. Uh, she wrote a book called Healthy Morning, Happy Loving, 52 Ways to Convert Your Grief to Mourning with Ease and Grace. Maria, are you there? I am. Thank you so much for letting me join you here. Thank you for talking to us today. Uh, Maria came to the Kootenays a little while ago and taught a, a workshop on companioning grief, and I was attendant at that workshop, and I found her incredibly inspiring and uh, super helpful. So I thought it would be a good thing for our listeners to hear a little bit of Maria wisdom. <laughs> I'm happy to share any wisdom that I can with you all. I, I love your area, and it was lovely to be there for that workshop that, uh, that was put on in New Denver. I look forward to coming back. Well, I hope you do. Well, Maria Wisdom, should it be called Maria Dumb? <laughs> I don't know that that works so well. No, no? I, don't, okay. I don't think so. Yeah. By the way, Maria, this is Jeff. Jeff Hi, Maria. Maria. Hi, Jeff. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you, too. So, Maria, uh, healthy morning, happy loving, converting grief to mourning. So what's the difference between grief and mourning? Yeah, that's a great question, um, because most of us use those terms interchangeably. We, we use grief and mourning, and we think we're saying the same thing, but in truth, they're two very different things. Grief is the constellation of symptoms and emotions and, and experiences that you have that are internal whenever you experience a loss, and it can be any kind of loss. So sadness is part of it, anger can be part of it, the emotions can be part of it, but it's also the confusion that you go through in your mind and, and the um, physical symptoms of aches and pains in the body. All of that is the internal experience of the loss. Mourning is the external expression of what's going on on the inside, and what happens is these symptoms soften over time if we are good at converting our grief to mourning and if we're paying attention and we're staying present to what's going on for us. We get into a lot of trouble if we ignore grief or we, if we avoid our grief, um, and then these symptoms start to harden over time instead of soften, and then we can get into some real trouble. You were saying in the workshop that in our culture we don't deal with grief particularly well, and so a lot of people experience buried and carried grief. Can you yeah. explain a little bit about what that is? Yeah. Well, buried and carried grief, uh, the grief has to go somewhere, right? So if we're going to avoid it or if we're going to pretend that, that it's not happening in our world um, or that we're not being affected by the loss, then it starts to get buried and carried inside our body, and our body is carrying the weight of that. And the body can only do that for so long. Now, for some of us, we're real camels with that kind of pain. And, uh, and we can go for years and years and even decades for some people. Um, but it can then outpicture in, in medical issues. It can outpicture as us losing our joy of life. And, and we suddenly realize that we haven't laughed in years and that we haven't really stepped into our life. And what's, what's happened is that we've buried and carried our grief. 
And with every new grief, we if we have the habit of burying and carrying, we bury and carry that as well. So we may have layers of buried and carried grief. And in this society, you know, we, we do lots of buck-up messages. We, we tell people, you know, they're in a better place and, and we need to move on or it's been three months, what's taking so long, I wish you were back to the old you. And, of course, we're never back to our old self. We, we learn and grow as we move through the grief process, but we'll never be the person that we were before our loved one died. Does that mean we're sort of condemned to being sad for the rest of our lives in this culture? No, we're condemned to being sad if we don't deal with the grief process because what's so brilliant about the grief process is that our insides know what it needs to do to convert the grief to mourning and our insides are always telling us and it always starts with slow down messaging. So the confusion that that we experience so that literally in the early stages of grief we feel like we can't even add two and two and come up with four. All of the mental symptoms that we go through, the physical symptoms that we go through, the emotional symptoms that we go through, it's asking us to slow down so that we can really take stock of what's going on, so that we can really move through the process. But if we're wanting to avoid that pain and pretend that it doesn't exist, that's when the sadness is constant because what happens is we can't remember our loved one without crying because all of the grief emotions are there. Um, Dr. Alan Wolfelt, who is my mentor, has a lovely saying where he says, grief does not awaits time, grief awaits welcome, which means this notion that time heals all wounds is just not true when it comes to grief. When it comes to grief, we have to be willing to attend what's happening and, and make things okay for ourselves again, to reconcile with the loss, which takes some work. So if we're willing to go through the pain as it's showing up, then we're not condemned to the pain and to the grief for the rest of our lives. A lot of people say, you know, once somebody dies that I'm going to be grieving for the rest of my life, and that would be a condemnation. If we're willing to convert our grief to mourning and do the hard work of that, then what happens is we do come out the other side, and then the grief bursts that we have, the memories that we have become joyful experiences, so it doesn't have to be a sad thing. That's got to be a bit of a challenge, though, for men as opposed to women. Yeah. Right? Yeah, I... Absolutely. I I think men, um, traditionally, because in society they're not always allowed to express their emotions as readily as women are allowed to express their emotions, so it becomes a real challenge for men to embrace that journey and and to embrace all that it means. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So you say in your book you have 52 ways to convert grief to mourning, so give us one or two examples. Uh, By the way, are you a Paul Simon fan? I am very much a Paul Simon fan. Okay, that's where this title came from then, right? Uh, 52 ways to leave your lover? <laughs> it actually isn't, and it's very funny. You should say that because I didn't even realize that it was 52 until I wrote the book, and then I suddenly realized it was 52, and then I suddenly realized that there are 52 weeks in a year. Yeah. So that number just, it, it, it was in the writing of it that 52 came forward. But right. it's funny you should mention that that connection to it because I had never seen that before. Well, I am um, a but, genius, so. You really are. At least um, in my own but, mind. <laughs> 
Well, I was listening to you last hour, and I heard you say it's hard to be depressed when listening to this music that you were playing. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I thought that was such a brilliant statement because, um, you know, depression, that's, that's part of the journey through grief. And people who have been um, diagnosed with clinical depression have, have real fear around the depression of grief, which is quite different than clinical depression. Mm-hmm. Um, but what, what ends up happening is music becomes a key tool. And so in the 52 Ways, I talk about how you can use music to convert your grief to mourning. And um, music can become a key part of any kind of funeral service or memorial service, playing their favorite songs, listening to favorite songs. But sometimes that can be challenging in the early days of grief. You know, I, I remember for myself when I was grieving the loss of my mother, mm-hmm. I just had to turn the radio off. I couldn't listen to anything for fear that a song would come on that would spin me out and, and that would take me straight to the heart of my grief. So there are ways to control, you know, how, how quickly we do this. And our insides know when we're ready to listen to music again. Mm-hmm. So you're right. It, it can be very hard to, to be depressed listening to the music you were playing, but by the same token, um, it can also be really unsettling in the early days. And so we have to be very patient with ourselves and use these tools like music um, and listen to, to the music that we know is going to trigger us uh, when we're in a safe place to yeah. be triggered and then allow the trigger to happen. The key is to not fight the trigger when it happens, to allow the tears, to allow the anger, to allow whatever's coming up. Um, to move through you as opposed to getting stuck in it because you're fighting against it. Uh, uh, okay, were you uh, saying that my choice of music was lousy? Or? <laughs> Not at all. No? Not at all. all right. um, what I was commenting on is, is your comment about it's hard to be depressed with this because I think yeah. part of what happens in society is our friends so want us to be okay again that, that sometimes they push us forward in that for in that motion, yeah. they, they want us to be back to the people that we were. And the best thing that you can do, if you have a friend who is grieving, the best thing that you can do is listen to them about what they need most right now and yeah. remind them that they know what they need right now. And so um, you were asking about men, and quite often what men will do is, is they'll find something to go and do, like let's go fishing, let's go play tennis, let's go do something that, that we normally do that will be cheery. There's nothing wrong with that. As, as long, long as it's as not avoidance. Exactly. That's exactly right. As yeah. long as we're not doing that to avoid the emotion, but rather we're doing that in order to give the person who is grieving space so that they can talk to us while we're doing the activity. Yeah. And if the friend's not quite up to the activity, if, if we ask them what they would like us to do or would they like us to just come over to their place and mm-hmm. just be very patient with, with what they need because they do know what they need most. Mm-hmm. And that's, okay, I mean, I've talked about this, well, Anna and I have talked about this subject a few times on the show over the years, where in my experience, okay, because I dealt with a lot of deaths and a lot of just crap of life, if you will, and what I discovered is most of the people that I was close to, they actually avoided contact with me rather than try to you know, offer a shoulder or an ear or whatever. And I think that that's a common thing. The, the more people that I talk to, it's not that they're abandoning you, but they're afraid to trigger. They're afraid to do something wrong. Yes, but exactly doing right. that, though, or not doing something can be far more damaging 
yeah. than being in their space and triggering something. At least if you're there and your intention is pure, you can help them through yeah. a, a flushing time. Correct? That's absolutely, that's absolutely right. You, you said that so brilliantly because it, it is devastating. Yeah. It is what we call a secondary loss. We lose a whole bunch of our support systems. Um, some of them, they go away because they don't know what to say and, and like you said, they don't want to trigger us. Um, and one of my favorite poems talks about, you know, we fear saying the person's name because we don't want to remind you that they're gone. But the truth is, we know they're gone. We, we know those tears are at the ready. And as a friend, the greatest thing that you can do is provide a safe space for the trigger. If, if mm -hmm. you trigger it by something you say or something you do, that's okay as long as you're a safe space for them to be triggered. If you're afraid of the trigger, if you're afraid of the tears, if you're afraid of whatever emotion they might come up with, that's where you become a dangerous place for them mm -hmm. to be, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're wanting to be a really good friend, it's about being willing to say to your friend, you know, I'm here, and if you're triggered by anything that happens, please just know I'm not going away, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> However, because most of us do have some buried and carried grief, we're not as afraid of triggering our friends as we are afraid that when they're triggered, we will also be triggered. And so there are a group of people who actually avoid you because they don't want to feel what, what's still unresolved for them. Because right. when we bury and carry our grief, that triggers pretty raw for us as well, and it doesn't take much to bring it up. You know, yeah. I'm one of those rare people who hasn't really experienced a lot of loss in my life. I've certainly, I mean, I've experienced hard times, especially as a child. Um, and so when I do grief work, I usually kind of utilize those experiences to process my own stuff. But I don't have um, the experience of losing anyone close to me. Yeah. Um, so... I remember the first time I had a close friend who uh, lost her husband and my inclination was when I got together with her was to talk about him because I thought, you know, she'll want to remember him. She'll want to talk about him and it's going to be hard for people to talk about him. So I, that's something I can offer. Yeah. Um, but one of the things that I learned in that workshop with you is that it's really important to allow the person who is grieving to follow their own path to be in control of the process and not to sort of steer them into doing anything in particular. Yeah. Which is hard for a lot of people. We all want to well, fix it. It's very hard because we all want to fix it. You know, we all have really lovely hearts and, and with the best of intentions, we want to make it okay. And the reality is, it's not okay. For the person who's grieving, their world has been turned upside down and their world is not okay. And there's no words that are going to fix this. The, the healing of this is going to take time and it's going to take patience. And it's going to take the space that the friend can create to allow um, the one who's grieving the time and the space that they need. And what's so brilliant about what you just said, Anna, is you went in 
knowing that you know you could have those conversations when other people couldn't but the question is could the person who is grieving have those conversations because there will there will come a time when they will absolutely want to share their stories and when they'll absolutely need to share their memories and knowing that you're a safe space becomes truly a godsend for them um, they'll remember when, yeah but but yeah. when they're not ready yet um, to, to force that on them, to, to say, hey, let's talk about your husband, um, the, the better way to approach that maybe is to say, you know, whenever you're ready to talk about your husband, I'd love to learn more about him, mm-hmm. but, but in your own time, so that you're always kind of giving the reins of the conversation over to the person who is grieving. That's a really important piece of the puzzle. I didn't, um, in that situation, require her to talk about her husband or even encourage her to, but I talked about him. I was reminiscing, you know, like it would, he would come up in conversation fairly regularly. I was, you know, remember when he used to do this and it would make me laugh or whatever. And, and all of her friends would shush me. And I realized when looking at her, she always lightened in those moments. And so I realized that it wasn't a problem for her to do, for me to talk about him. Yeah, because for the person who's grieving, their biggest fear is that their loved one will be forgotten. So if you talk about your memories of that loved one and you share a story that maybe they didn't know about their loved one, see, the person who's grieving is in a journey themselves where they're letting go of the physical relationship that they had with the person who died, and they're discovering where the new relationship lives. And that's a really important part of the grief journey. So part of what they're doing is they're shifting from the physical to a memory, and the more memories that come to them that are memories that they, you know, stories they haven't heard before, that's just a gem. That's a treasure in the journey that they're on. So you're giving your friend just a a really important piece of the puzzle, and, and that does lighten it because, again, that allows a bit of the conversion from grief to mourning, and that allows that lightening to happen. The friends who are shushing you are because they're afraid of triggering her and triggering themselves. And, and it always goes back to this notion of triggering, right? Yeah. So when yeah. people shush me, that's what they're doing? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Just wanted to confirm that. People well, in, shush in this Jeff context, you know, I don't oh, know okay. if they shush you in other contexts. Oh, but they <laughs> do it all the time. <laughs> Anna does it to me all the time, too. She's doing it right now, actually. Yeah. She's just giving me the evil eye. Yeah. That's the benefit of being in the same studio. Yeah. There you go. There you go. But it's, um, it's, I, I do want to mention one other thing that you yep. brought up, Anna, which is really important. You know, we live in the first grief-free generation because of the advances in, in medicine and people living longer. Um, we can go to our 40s and even t- into our 50s without having somebody close to us die. And so, Anna, what, what you said about, you know, I haven't had that experience myself, it's, it's a really important piece of the puzzle to understand that people are coming into their midlife and suddenly they're having to deal with this. And not only are they having to deal with the death of one person, but often they're having to deal with multiple deaths, which can complicate the situation. And they've never been taught how to walk through this. So when people are saying, you know, the buck up, move on messages, they're taking this as wisdom. And and then suddenly they're realizing, well, that's not what feels true on the inside. And sometimes people who are grieving can get really stuck between the world that wants them to move on and this feeling like they're 
they've been victimized by the situation and the scenario and and that they'll never get over it because that's part of the experience in the early days of grief that that overwhelming feeling that you're never going to see the light of day again well and you're talking about losing fellow humans but I mean, I have attachments, I mean, ever since I was a kid, I had huge attachments to pets, yeah. for example. Yeah. And also, I mean, death is can be metaphorical, too. I mean, it's not just about someone that you know literally dying, but it can be an end of a relationship. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. There are so Absolutely. many things. I mean, Anna and I have talked about this. Uh, Anna divorced her parents, uh, well, about a year ago. Mm -hmm. Well, you've done it several times, but you (laughs) did it officially a year ago. And uh, there was a bit of a grieving process in that. Definitely. Absolutely. Every every loss has grief because, again, the definition of grief is that constellation of internal experiences that are a direct result of the loss. Yes. And, and, you know, when you mention the loss of a pet, that is devastating for a number of reasons. For most of us, our pets are actually the closest beings to us yeah. because they're with us night and day. They hear our inner thoughts and feelings. They come to us when we need them the most. And to suddenly not have that support system, that's just devastating. And then we have a society that says, oh, it's just a pet. You know, you can always get another dog or a cat, which is just absolutely not true. So what that becomes, you know, there's a real fancy word for it which says disenfranchised, that it's a disenfranchised grief. But really all that that means is it's a grief that your community doesn't recognize as valid. Mm -hmm. And you're almost uh, made to feel ashamed for it. I I know that that's happened to me where... I was heartbroken, like just right. totally devastated. I think you're being dramatic. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And yeah, a- anyway, I, the I other just thing had that to stick my two cents in there. It's, and it's so important when that happens that we find people who will allow us, again, the space and the grace for us yeah. to go through our grieving process because it, it is no different. We have to go through that conversion of grief to mourning. We have to find where our relationship with that beloved furry animal or feathered animal or scaled mm-hmm. animal, where, where that lives now. Mm-hmm. Um, and in order for us to truly come to reconciliation with it and then move forward in our lives. Because as long as we don't come to reconciliation with it, um, then then we're stuck in buried and carried grief. Mm-hmm. Jeff has actually been, I think, really helpful to a number of people in the community who have been in that position of disenfranchised grief, you know, really grieving a pet and not being understood by most of their friends. And then Jeff has reached out and, uh, and yeah. given them that time and space and acknowledgement. Yeah, yeah, I think that's been something that he's done super well, actually. The other thing that comes well, to you. mind is, um, is miscarriages and abortions and yeah. how difficult that is because it's something that you know, no one's actually seen and connected to other than the woman and most likely the father of the child so how we deal with those kinds of grief i find we don't deal with it super well put it that way well and and that one in particular is very difficult because um you know women and couples are told very early on don't share the news about a pregnancy for the first three months and and where does that wisdom come from it's because you don't want to share it in case you lose the baby Mm -hmm. but here's the problem with that 
so now I can't share my joy with you, and I also can't share my devastation with you if that happens. So I'm completely cut off from my community and my support system, and I'm going to work, and I am beyond devastated, and they don't understand. I've just had a death in the family. For the female, I've had a death in my body. Mm -hmm. You know, that, that, that is devastating, and it's something that I really hope... Um, we start to think about in a different way and and that we recognize that grief is grief is grief is grief. A, a loss is going to bring up this need to go through the grief process and as a community, we need to learn how to come around somebody who is grieving and support them in that journey as opposed to isolating them and alienating them and making them feel alone in, in that devastation. What about medical assistance in dying and families who are dealing with that? Have you noticed any complication in the grief process from that? Very interesting question. Um, Yeah, I I have noticed, um, and I think hospices across Canada, not just British Columbia, but across Canada, when I talk to hospice practitioners, um, I, I keep getting the same story. So what we have to remember about grief is that grief sits with the person who is grieving. And what that means is every grief is unique and the person who is grieving a loss will do it through their own filters and through their own understanding of what's happening. So when we talk about medical assistance in dying, people have very different understandings of what that means. And when a family member makes that choice for themselves, the family that's left to grieve, each person in that family is going to register that through their own filters and through their own understanding of, of what that means. And for some family members, medical assistance in dying is a godsend, and, and they're just ever so grateful, and it's a beautiful um, journey that the family is on together. And for other family members, and it can be in the exact same family, for other family members, they will see this as um, a death by suicide. And again, um, this is all about the person who is grieving filtering the death through their own understanding. And so they will grieve that death in a very different way than the family member who sees it as a blessing. And that that can really tear a family apart as well. It's, it's a very... It's a sad part of what can happen in, in that situation. It's interesting. I never really thought about that aspect of it, that because people are perceiving it differently. I have been attendant at deaths where some members of the family have been atheists and some religious, and I have seen how that can really complicate grief um, because they're interpreting the death differently. Well, again, um, I, I always want to be careful with using the word complication because I think that's, that's an overused term where, where grief is concerned. People think if somebody's going through it a little longer than they think they should be going through it, that it's complicated. Um, they, there are very specific definitions of complicated grief and what makes a grief complicated. But the truth is it sits with the individual who is grieving and the uniqueness of, of 
their belief system, like you said. You know, it can be the, the religious conversation. It, it is about the friend situation. You know, as Jeff mentioned, um, the friends that disappear on you and then you have that secondary loss. The number of people who, who disappear from your life, that can impact your grief. Uh, there, there are many different factors that are going to make your grief very unique, including your personality and, and how you see life. And so um, every person grieves in their own way. And, and the key here is that every person has that journey inside of them and they know their way out better than anybody else. They are the experts on their own grief. What the book is looking to do is to kind of walk alongside with and, and invite ideas about what, what your insights are asking you to do. And when somebody's reading the book, they immediately key into, oh, this would really help me, this is a great idea, or you know what, this doesn't feel right for right now, but maybe later on. And so we, we always want to make sure that the individual who's grieving is kept as the expert on their own grief. They know their pathway through. Right, and you know, one of the logical things, well, the way that I found out about your book being published is because you sent around uh, an email to your mailing list about beginning a grief support group, specifically yeah. working through the 52 ways. Yeah. And that's just struck me as such a perfect thing to uh, set up a, an organized kind of place for people to talk about their own grief. Yeah, absolutely, and, and thank you for bringing that up, because honestly, Jess, that's where the 52 ways came up for me. Um, the book was published at the end of November, and in December, I kind of looked at it, and I went, 52, that, that's one a week. We could actually do kind of a healthy morning 2020, where once a week, we take a conversion technique, and so what I do with the people who, who are in this group is... We, once a week, go through a Facebook Live, and it's a special closed group, and, um, and then we do the Facebook Live where I talk about that particular conversion technique, and then we share ideas about it, and throughout the week, we can talk to each other and support each other through the Facebook Live. And then once a month, I have a Q&A, and the Q&A literally just goes as long as there are questions um, that need to be answered. So it can go an hour, it can go an hour and a half, whatever it needs. So once a month, I also do a Q&A. And, and it's a way of um, supporting people where they are in their journey and, and brainstorming with each other and getting ideas from each other and just knowing we're not alone. Because the biggest challenge is, is this aloneness and isolation that can happen with grief. I would imagine it's kind of hard for people to find support uh, groups like that in uh, small communities, too. I mean, we live very rurally, and, and our yeah. communities are quite isolated. Absolutely. Well, I, I can speak for your area because, of course, I was in New Denver, but um, in New Denver we also had people from the cusp, and we had people um, from... A, all sorts of areas. Caslow, uh, I, I think. Caslo. We, we had Caslow there, and um, I'm, uh, I think we had Salmo there as well. We, we had people from hospices all through that area, and that's what's so magical. Um, you're very rich with hospices, and you're very rich with really caring and nurturing um, volunteers, such as yourself. Who, who have taken training and, and continue to improve their understanding of how they can be a good companion. And so some of, some of those groups have 
bereavement support groups. Some of the hospices have, have that. Um, this group is intended to bring literally the world together, and I've had people who have purchased the book in Germany and in England, and, and um, to, to have that kind of richness of the oneness experience, you know, that, that all of us who are part of this group have lost loved ones who are near and dear and, and that we can share that richness. The other thing that the worldwide community brings, and, and this is something that was a surprise to me, um, is no matter what time of day or night that you're on, uh, somebody might be there because of the time differences. So sleeplessness and restlessness is actually a symptom of grief, and when we're up at 2 o'clock in the morning or 3 o'clock in the morning, we don't always know where we can find support. Well, first and foremost, these videos are always available to you, so you can always be tapping in and listening to my voice even if I'm asleep. Um, but, but also, there may be somebody in England who's awake, or there may be somebody in Austria who's awake who you can have a conversation with, and that was a really nice uh, side discovery. Only if you can understand them. <laughs> well, because we're English-speaking, and I don't do translation, so my videos are all English. No, I meant <laughs> the so Austrians. <laughs> well, but, but, get get but the, better. But, but the Austrians understand English because they wouldn't be part of the group if they didn't, because <laughs> I don't speak German. <laughs> got you. I got you now. They might speak with an accent, but the good news is when they're typing, you can still understand what they're saying. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah, that's the beauty of the World Wide Web is that everybody pretty much has some level of English if they're interacting yeah. on the Internet now. Plus there's yeah. translation programs, but I don't know how well they work. That's right. That's right. So I think it's time for a quick musical break. Yeah. And what's been rattling around in my head, it's not 52, but 50 ways to leave your lover. There you go. All right. So I'm just going to play a couple minutes of that, and then we'll be back. And okay. I want to ask you something different uh, okay. along a different uh, train of thought. So Sounds we'll, good. we'll be right back, okay? You bet. All right. And get yourself free. That was Paul Simon singing 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover. So are you still there, Marie? I am still here, yeah. All right. <laughs> it's been a while since I've heard that song. Yeah, I haven't played that track in a long time. And I thought it was 52 ways, but it's 50 Yeah, it ways. was 50. Mm, yeah. Oh, well. So, okay, like I said, I wanted to change the, uh, the, well, the discussion a little bit. We've got roughly 15, 20 minutes before the end of the interview. Uh -huh. And it's always a good sign when... The time just flies by, and we're thinking, "Oh crap, we don't. We're running out of time." But anyway, the, so Anna told me that you're writing another book about yeah. about uh, uh, womb twins. Yes. Yeah. And ca can you touch base on that? Because I find that really intriguing. Yeah. It might be another interview. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I'm writing a book um, about how to do healthy mourning for womb twin survivors. So perhaps we need to explain what a womb twin survivor is. That's a and womb mate, right? <laughs> Not quite. No? Okay. Um, Anna, what you were talking about, uh, about um, when somebody has a miscarriage or, or somebody um, has a death in the womb, what a womb twin survivor is, is when there were two in the womb and one of the twins died but the other one survived. 
And what's shocking about this is how many of us are actually womb twin survivors, perhaps without even knowing it, um, because most of us don't even discover that we're womb twin survivors until later in life. And um, and so in some cases, the parents know that, that there were two in the womb, and they think that because... Um, the baby, you know, was born and was born healthy, that that they have no effects of this and they don't need to be told about the twin. Um, but what we're discovering is that for people who are womb twin survivors, and I am one, that um, that we have a whole different take on grief because our first experience of grief happened in the womb. And studies are now showing that one in ten of us are actually womb twin survivors, and that statistic is coming because um, because now we have the ultrasounds happening earlier in pregnancies where we see two, and then we suddenly discover that there's only one. Wow. Hmm. So, what is the actual condition? I mean, if if this happens inside of the womb, is there separation and anxiety? Uh, there can be separation anxiety. There can be survivor guilt. Yeah. Um, for a womb twin survivor, most of their early life is around grief avoidance because they have this kind of cloud of sadness and anxiety that they can't explain. They don't know what it is. Um, they, they just know that they're experiencing life differently and that perhaps the joy is not there and, and that that there's this um, anxiousness, panic attacks. Uh, there, there are all manner of symptoms that a womb twin survivor may experience, not just in their early life, but throughout their lives, um, that, that then can outpicture as not getting involved in relationship, being isolated and alone, um, because they were born with this belief of, of they are alone. Mm-hmm. And, and they can also be searching for... Um, we have this term, you know, the soulmate and, and searching for the soulmate or the twin flame and then suddenly discovering, oh, wait a minute, um, nobody meets the criteria, but that's because the criteria that they're trying to hold for the other is of a twin and nobody's going to take the place of that twin. And in fact, in Healthy Morning 2020, um, as, as I go through this, I actually talk about womb twin survivors because I have a number of people who are womb twin survivors and who are looking to do catch-up mourning about their twin because they've been carrying this grief for 40 or 50 years and, and they want to discover um, how to honor that grief converted to mourning and step into living their lives to the fullest. Hmm. So how do you find out that you're a womb twin survivor? You talk to a, a psychic, <laughs> right? Some kind of well, loopy doodle, right? Some kind of loopy doodle. Yeah. <laughs> Would that be the technical term? <laughs> yeah, that's it. <laughs> um, so, so there are a number of ways of of discovering uh, that you're a womb twin survivor. And for people who are interested in learning about this, there are two terms: uh, the term vanishing twin, um, because quite often the one twin then uh, the surviving twin absorbs. Um, the, the second twin. It's, it's part of what happens in the course of, of the twin's death. And so sometimes we discover it because somebody has an appendix or somebody has um, some kind of medical situation and then suddenly uh, a fragment of the twin is found in whatever 
part was removed from the surviving twin. So that's one way that people find out, and those things tend to show up only in midlife, um, which is why this can happen quite a bit in midlife. Mm-hmm. Also, it happens through um, deathbed discoveries where, uh, you know, the mother is is not wanting to go to her grave without telling the twin, you know, there were two of you. It can be discoveries that way. Right. Or um, the father, so, so this is an interesting piece of information which surprised me when I found out about this. Um, quite often in the 60s and in the 70s, uh, the father was told, and in fact most recently I heard somebody talk about this where their twins are still, uh, their, sorry, their daughter who was a twin um, I think she was five years old, and the father came up to me and said, you know, the doctor told me that this had happened because the doctor at the time of the birth may see evidence of of the twin. And so sometimes what's happened is the doctor tells the father, not the mother, and leaves it to the father as to whether they want to tell the mother or not. And fathers um, quite often choose not to tell the mother because they don't want to upset the mother. Yeah, they want to protect Exactly, it's yeah. it's a protection thing. It's it's all with good intention, mm-hmm. um, but but then maybe the mother feels something is off or wrong because right. intuition is kicking in, and and the child instinctively, intuitively knows something's wrong, something's not right, and and they are in this grief pattern, and uh, and so it can also happen in psychoanalysis as as they're going through it, and and there are symptoms of of somebody who is a womb twin survivor. Mm-hmm. And you say that one one of the babies, one of the fetuses, feti, I guess, <laughs> yes. um, will absorb the other. Yes. Now that explains, like all of a sudden I had this flash of Donald Trump. That's probably what happened with him. He oh, consumed. Let's not go there. Oh, no, sorry, I was just... Yeah. Really? Do we, do we need to bring that one in? No, we don't. <laughs> no. <laughs> I've been watching too much Stephen Colbert, and I wanted to say something funny, but but well, I'll stop well, now. I, I, and I love Stephen Colbert, and I love his take on it all. It's but, the only yeah. way I watch the news. Yeah. <laughs> it's the only way I can do it is with a little bit of humor. Yeah. Anyway, right. I digress. So, okay, our show is called Shift Happens. Mm-hmm. And so what I would like to ask you is what happened in your life? What was the catalyst for you to do what you're doing now. I mean, you've written, what, one book, or have you wrote uh, several? Yeah, so written? so I've written Healthy Morning, Happy Loving. It's my first published book, and okay. the second one is in process right now. Yeah. Um, and I would love to hear from anybody who is a womb twin survivor, because I'm collecting um, testimonial stories to include in the book. So if there's anybody who, who would like to share with me their story, I'd love to hear it. How would they do that? Um, they can email me at mkfacilitations.com, so that's M-K-F-A-C-I-L-I-T-A-T-I-O-N-S at Shaw, S-H-A-W dot C-A. And, um, you know, what happened for me is I discovered as I was coming on to my 50th birthday that I am a wound twin survivor. Um, but by then I had already experienced, experienced two major losses, and within two years of finding this out, I then experienced two more major losses, and then I had one more major loss. So in the last decade, 
I have processed six very significant um, losses in my life, deaths. Sounds like me. Yeah. Not not this last decade, but yeah, I went through I went through a period of about twelve years where I lost someone important to me every year. Yeah. And just when you get up, you you can pull yourself off the ground and function. Then whammo, you're back on. Or I was. I'm not going to talk in the third person. I was back on my back, and and this just went. It was just brutal. Yeah. But, you know, uh, that which doesn't kill us. Yes. Right. And 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 we use things like that to move forward and to motivate ourselves. Yeah. Um. And and the reality is, with the first with the first couple, where we're just trying to figure out our way through this, and yeah. and we do just naturally avoid the pain of it. When the second, the third, the fourth one happens. Yeah. Um, there, there's no denying it anymore, and part of what happens is it becomes a domino effect. Yes. So not only are we feeling the sadness and the pain of the current loss, but we're also experiencing what we've buried and carried. Because it's and triggered. It become, yeah, yeah, exactly. And and it bec- it can become really overwhelming and, and even debilitating. Mm-hmm. So the healing piece is is in converting the grief to mourning. And the good news is, no matter how long you've been bearing and carrying grief, and for womb twin survivors, you know, that's 40, 50 years, um, where they didn't even know that that's what they were doing, um, that we we can do catch-up mourning. We can always do catch-up mourning. And our willingness is what opens the door. Because again, as Dr. Wofeld says, um, grief awaits welcome. And mm-hmm. so when when we are willing, and all we have to do is say, I am willing to feel this, I am willing to move through this, I am willing to discover what's on the other side of this. The grief journey um, is, is a very sacred journey. And yeah, there's sadness, and yes, there's pain, but there's also joy, and there's also laughter. We get to reclaim those memories that right now, the memories are a threat because you know, if we remember them, then we're going to cry because we're so upset about the loss. Yeah. But when we get to reclaim those memories, and and we get to have those memories, and and you know, we get to cook the the old recipes and smell the smells that fill the kitchen that used to fill mom's kitchen. And play and, the songs. And that's not a sad place anymore. That's a joyful celebration. Yeah. That that's that's where the the true healing happens. Mm-hmm. And yeah. playing the songs. And playing the song. I had you to repeat myself there. Yes, I had to repeat myself that. there. And you're so right, playing the mm-hmm. songs. And the songs can also help in the journey. Mm-hmm. One of my absolute favorite songs for this, um, because I'm a firm believer in buried and carried grief, for people who, who they can't quite access their tears, but they know that something's going on in there, a tearjerker song is brilliant and can really, really tap into that and touch that tender place for us and and allow those tears to release and then we feel lighter and i love krista berg's carry me because it is it is just such a beautiful beautiful song that speaks just to this right the other thing that i've found uh movies there are yes. certain movies that are just brilliant for for that um, Absolutely. Have you seen a monster uh, d- calls? A monster calls is good, but another. It's a m- kind of a small series on Netflix. It's called uh-huh. Afterlife. Have you watched that? I have not. I have heard about it. I haven't watched it, is, it yet. It is really, really well done. I mean, it's very touching, very humorous, but I think you'd really appreciate it. 
Yeah, absolutely. And and even just on mainstream television, I mean, the need for catch-up morning is so huge that um, shows like This Is Us become number one shows because we all need that Tuesday tearjerker. We, we all want to in a safe space, and, and the Pearson family becomes a safe space for us. I love that show. Right. Yeah. I've never, I've seen the thumbnail for it, but I've never watched it. No, me neither. I, oh, I, 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 my life is filled with enough tearjerkers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I hear that. Yeah. So, Maria, before we uh, have to go, I just wanted to put it out there again to everybody listening. If you are interested in getting a copy of Healthy Morning, Happy Loving, yeah. I know you have a website, mkfacilitations.com, but is there another way? Can they get it on Amazon they or something? They can get it on Amazon. It's available worldwide on Amazon. Okay. Absolutely. Healthy Morning, Happy Loving. And can you give your contact info one more time? Absolutely. Email address and all that. Absolutely, because then I can connect you up with Healthy Morning 2020. Um, We we can hook you up to whatever you're needing for support. It's MK Facilitations, so M-K-F-A-C-I-L-I-T-A-T-I-O-N-S at Shaw.ca. M-O-U-S-E. Oh, sorry. (laughs) Perfect. Oh, Jeff, I'm loving you. (laughs) Yeah. Humor is a good way of dealing with grief, well, too. Well, you're really going to love me now because I actually found the song that you <gasps> just said. Christopher, carry So me. what an appropriate way to end the show. What do you think? Oh, I, yes, I love it. Thank you, thank you for doing this. You're very welcome. It, it, the words of the song just touched the heart of it. Well, um, I'm going to play this track on one condition, though. Yes that you agree to do another interview sometime in the future. <laughs> Anytime, I'd be happy to. It's just been delightful chatting with the two of you. Awesome. Perfect. Well, thank you very much. We've been talking to Maria Klievkoff, who has written a book called Healthy Morning, Happy Loving, 32 Ways to Convert Your Grief to Morning with Ease and Grace. And so you've been listening to Shift Happens, The Empower Hour. My name is Jeff. And I'm Anna. And we're going to end the show playing Krista Berg, Carry Me, Carry Me, like a fire in your heart. So we will see you next week. <laughs>